we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. And today, we will be finishing chapter 1. Okay? So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> We're looking at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 32. The inerrant and infallible word of God reads as follows. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you may remind us today that when our hearts turn to idolatry, when our hearts are not filled of your spirit, there could be no end to the depths of wicked depravity. May your Holy Spirit give us the power to recognize and repent from this desire that we have to take you off the throne, to take you out of our lives, to take you out of our hearts. We ask these things, Lord, this morning in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. And in his name we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so today's sermon is a continuation of last week, which I titled, Idolatry and Deviancy, Part 2. Now, in God's sovereignty... It seems that the Sunday school we had today taught by Brother Johnny already kind of set the primary, set the stage for the sermon today. And I'd like to have a quick word of caution for us. As we read about men's depravity, as we read about what God says about our, our natural state as those who suppress the truth of God as those who want to go our own way. There might be an inclination for us to be self-righteous. That's just the truth. That self-righteousness could show perhaps in an attitude, even if I don't say it, but I could be thinking like, yeah, I thank God I'm not like those heathens out there. Or I thank God that Acts Reformed Church is not like all those other churches. So on and so forth. My brothers and sisters, as we approach the topic of sexual deviancy, of being full of wickedness and unrighteousness, let us never forget that unless God had not saved us, we would be in the same boat and perhaps even worse than those we are quickly to turn and point to saying, why can they be like me? Let us not fall into that pit, my friends. 
and recognize that it's only by God's grace and mercy that we can recognize sinfulness, that we can recognize wickedness, so that being empowered by God, we could turn from that and repent and turn to Christ. Let us keep that in mind as we study this topic. A quick recap of how we got to the end of chapter 1 of Romans. Paul is developing the theme of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel. That's the good news, right? We're talking about bad news, how evil humanity is. And in order for us to see that, Paul is telling us that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Christ dying in our place so that we may be reconciled with the holy God. However, we're being told that humanity, instead of embracing this message, our natural instinct is to repress it, to oppress it, to suppress it, to deny it, to reject it. And as we do that, there are consequences. The suppression of the truth of God leads to idolatry, which leads to all kinds of sins, specifically sexual misconduct and deviancy, and thus perverting the purposes of God. I'd like to call to your attention an illustration from a cartoon that my kids like to watch. This cartoon is from Wrecked Ralph. Some of you may have kids, you may remember. And in that cartoon, there is what they called a bad guy affirmation. A little bit of context here is that Ralph, is, he's, he does that. He, he wrecks things, right? And as he attends one of these bad guys anonymous meetings, as he's commiserating with the other bad guys, another bad guy who is, happens to be uh, one of the bad ghosts from Pac-Man, from that one cartoon and, and game, he tells Ralph the following. He says, Ralph, Ralph, we get it. As he was commiserating, he said, we get it. But we can't change who we are. The sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. To which Wrecker Ralph responds by saying, yeah, I guess, yep. And then they all hold hands sort of in a prayer-like manner, and they recite together the bad guy affirmation. I've included it here. And that affirmation says, they all say together, it says, I am bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. Bad guy affirmation. Now, the very first time I heard that as my kids were watching it, I told my wife, wait a minute, like, that is very insightful. Right? And believe it or not, there's theology in that. It's talking about who somebody is, about someone's nature, and what they can do or cannot do about it, and whether they're going to accept it or reject that identity. Now, the reason I bring that up is because in a very real sense, when it comes to true morality, what God defines to be right and wrong, the world around us wants us to change on some things. And most of those things are superficial. But when it comes to the commands of God, especially sexual morality, wouldn't it be true to suggest that the world essentially tells us and wants us 
to have our own bad guy affirmation by telling us that we are good the way we are. That's, that is, in essence, a bad guy affirmation that the world wants us to embrace. Yes, you know, those you may have some bad desires, and they not be good, but you're actually a good person. And that's basically our common world affirmation. I'm fine the way I am. And we need to realize that those desires, the lustful appetites that we have, in order to change that truly, not superficially, but in order to change that truly, what we must go to is not inside of us, but it's something from outside of us that needs to come and change us. We cannot do it ourselves. So today we will explore what rejecting that truth, that the change needs to come from outside of us, causes. In rejecting that truth, it is not only sexual perversion that will be promoted, but it is also accompanied with an entire plethora of evil, which are the sins that we just read at the conclusion of the passage. So then a question comes up. How does this sexual deviancy, how does this wickedness manifest itself in our culture today, in our everyday life? I commented last week on a couple of practical examples. But today let me bring to you another example that is very, very fresh. This has to do with what they call Bill, Bill C-4. This is a bill that will amend the criminal code in Canada this very week. As a matter of fact, I think it was yesterday it went into effect. And what it does is that it criminalizes and bans what they call conversion therapy. This is in the context of protecting those that are uh, of homosexual tendencies, and also anyone who abides by or embraces the so-called gender revolution. This bill has gone through Parliament, House, Senate, and the Queen has given it its royal assent. I'm going to read to you the preamble. It's just a, a very short couple sentences here. It says, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas, in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Now therefore, Her Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and the House of Commons of Canada, enacts as follows. And then he goes on to describe the ways in which conversion therapy will be criminalized. Okay? Now, 
as I often ask, I need to know what these terms mean. What do they mean by conversion therapy? And I'm glad they answered that question for me very clearly. In one of the government's websites, this is what it says. This is actually the second question of the frequently asked questions. What is conversion therapy? It's summarized in three quick points. And sorry, I don't have the notes, but I have it here. It says, conversion therapy refers to interventions designed to change the sexual orientation of bisexual, gay, and lesbian individuals to heterosexual or change a person's gender identity to cisgender. By the way, if, uh, if you're not aware of all the vocabulary butchering that they've done and inventions that the sexual revolution has come, um, don't be surprised if you don't know what cisgender means. That basically means like me, like I'm just a normal guy. I would be considered cisgender. And I'm an oppressor because I don't affirm and I don't agree with those that embrace the sexual and gender revolution. So if, uh, if you are a Christian, you are also a cisgender. And you are too an oppressor. Point number two, it, uh, conversion therapy refers to interventions designed to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or non-heterosexual sexual behavior. And lastly, here is the punchline. Ready? Here goes. Conversion therapy can take many forms, including counseling, behavioral modification, and talk therapy, and may be offered by professionals, religious officials, or lay persons. So you see where that all has gone, right? Conversion therapy, basically, don't tell anyone that they are in sin. Don't tell anyone that they have embraced a lie. Don't tell anyone that God says otherwise. And if you do, not only is cancel culture going to come after you, but now you are actually criminal, you are liable in a criminal court for transgressing this. Uh, but it's basically become a, a sort of religious cult. So what does the scripture say about where we should get our counsel? What does the scripture say? What is our standard in order to know whether we're going to correct someone or correct ourselves? Right? Because this doesn't even come into place. What if somebody wants to experience a uh, a change of mind and heart in respect to sexual identity or attraction. What does Jesus say? Well, first of all, Jesus makes it clear, affirming what the Old Testament says, that God made them male and female. That agrees with God's created order, agrees with nature, and agrees with basically what is commonly known throughout the history of humankind. What does specifically the Bible say about getting counsel and where from? Psalm 119, verses 24 and 25 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then a warning in Colossians 2.8. It 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. As I read to you from the preamble of this bill, which is, is, is now law, it says that these are nothing but myths, stereotypes, and useless religiosity. You see that? This type of rebellion of the human heart is one tangible aspect of how the depravity of the human heart takes shape in our everyday living in our world today. Did this happen from one day to the next? How do, how do we end up here? Right? Where, I mean, let alone proclaiming the gospel against such deviancy, but just your average household, hardworking mom and dad who just want to put their kids to school and, and, and mind their own business. If they're the ones who say, you know what? Mm, no, I don't want that being taught to my kids. Guess what? They are now being called all kinds of names. And they are now being called the villains. How do we end up here? And my main question is, where has the church been? Where have I been? Where have you been? Are you aware that we're here, that we're here now at this moment in history where the basic truths of biology are erased and a lie has been exchanged for the truth? And how do you respond as a church, as a believer? Or do you think that it's best to remain indifferent to these kinds of news and loss? Make no mistake, these types of laws are not going to stop in Canada. Let's not be naive. And when these laws do hit the public square, let us remember they did not materialize out of nothing. There's been a little ripple, a little wave of one thing after another that will lead to that. There's a Venezuelan commentator by the name of Emmanuel Rincón. He proposes that as historians have been predicting how World War III will be like, he proposes that they perhaps have missed the boat. And he argues that World War III is raging and is in full swing today. And he says that it started a while back ago, and it is not a war of weapons, but an ideological war. This ideological war, Mr. Rincon argues, uses the tools available to those who have a secular mindset. That would be academia, Education, K through 12, the university system for sure. Politicians enacting laws, right, that, that accord to that, to their uh, secular ideologies. 
certainly big tech, right? If you disagree or you put a comment on this, you will be banned. Celebrity culture, Hollywood. And now by large, even corporate America. Where it's no longer enough if you even want to be respectful and just not say anything. That's not enough. Now you're being asked, well, what do you think? And if you express an opinion or something that would be biblical, what do you think will happen? So as we discuss the effects of the rejection of God and how that leads to perversion, that does not come encapsulated, uh, it does not come by itself, but rather encapsulated as a part of a much more bigger package. And this commentator suggests, in a nutshell, that this is packaged with what we know as cultural Marxism. This is where the ideas of critical race theory come in play. This is where some seemingly noble ideas, such as social justice, is actually not justice, but it's corrupted justice, where it is neither better for the society nor for justice itself, but it's a perversion thereof. One of the most memorable examples was looking up the purposes of the Black Lives Matter organization, where one of his co-founders, Patrice Cullors, openly admitted that, quote, we are trained Marxists, unquote. And in their description of what they're trying to do, they explicitly said that they want to disintegrate the nuclear family. And instead of that, they want to advocate for, defend, and stand for LGBTQ plus rights. So again, why, why am I being so specific? Because what we study in scripture has tangible, real, everyday implications, consequences. The key thing is that as this commentator has made an assessment, I don't think he's far off. Now, I don't think he's a Christian, but he has seen the damage that secular mentality implementing that into government and institutions has done to the country where he's from. And he's basically saying, man, Americans are stupid. They don't see what's happening. And when I see and hear that, I may agree with him on that, but I'm saying even more than that, what is the church doing? And what should be our attitudes? What has the church done? By and large, unfortunately, I think the church has been asleep for the last years and decades, entertaining crowds, trying to be liked by the world, putting a bandage in the wound rather than doing surgery and cleaning out the gunk. The church has, in essence, said to our world what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6, verse 14, where it says about those evil prophets, they healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, 
where there is no peace. So in our scripture today, I want us to realize first that the refusal to be filled with God's word, with God's spirit, will lead to a reprobate mind. A mind that will agree with the deviancy and mind that will endorse the deviancy and the sins that we read in chapter 1 of Romans. A reprobate mind, says in another translation, where sin has been normalized. And then as a result of being emptied of God's word and God's spirit, that becomes filled with unrighteousness. Filled with unrighteousness. And then lastly, that as we empty ourselves of God, fill ourselves with unrighteousness, God says there is judgment coming. There will be judgment coming. Let us take a look at our first verse. The refusal to be filled with God's spirit, which leads to a reprobate mind. Verse 28 reads as follows. And says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Our minds and our hearts are going to follow something in the way that we live, in the way we think, in our character. The things we approve of, the things we reject of. Romans chapter 1 is arguably the clearest expression of what we will fill our minds and hearts with when we reject the truth of God. We refer to that in Reformed theology as total depravity, the depravity of man. The understanding that we as rebels are enemies of God by nature, meaning by the fall, and by choice, meaning I love sin. You don't have to force me to fall for it. Total depravity. And that unless God intervenes and makes us see our error, we will follow our own ways. God calls us to repent, to live by his word, to turn from sin and follow Christ. And then, out of love for Christ, to live a life of obedience to him. However, as we have seen here, the theme that Paul has been building in verse 18, 23, 24, 26, verse 28 now. He has told us that humanity refuses to acknowledge God. And God ultimately, as Brother Johnny was saying earlier in Sunday school, God removes the restraint and lets you go for it. And that leads to a debased mind, as the verse here says. Debased, what does that mean? It means morally reprehensible. The center of one's thoughts and feelings by which we make our decisions, by which we speak and act and do, that it is corrupted. What did Jesus say, remember? It is not what goes into a man that pollutes him, but it is what comes out. Right? Because we are full of sin. So this, as I call it, this center of command of our very being 
That's what determines our worldview. What is good? What is evil? What should be my priorities? How should I think about today's current events, about biblical sound theology, when it comes to the theology of our bodies, of sex, of medicine, of vaccines, of mandates? Or what should I fear? What should I evangelize about fear of? That, my friends, reflects our worldview. You can patch it up as pretty as you want, but that will reflect what is ultimately more important to you. Those that adamantly reject God essentially unlock a new level of having a morally reprehensible worldview. Where the scripture literally becomes fulfilled where it says in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's what the mind of, the, of a debased, of a reprobate mind does and thinks. And it says that they then move on to do things which ought not to be done. When we read ought not to be done, that means that there is something that you should do and something that you should not do. And God says the authority is me. There's no room there to see what my best friend says or my favorite artist or what have you says. No. The standard here says it's God. What you ought to do, what you ought not to do. Unwilling to be filled with the knowledge of God, with the spirit of God. Rejecting that, every person will be filled with something. And we see that in the next verse. That rebels are filled with unrighteousness. Verses 29 to 31 read as follows. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. As I was studying that list, I was pretty much, and it's not hard to do, you could do that in a couple minutes. You could link each of those sins to one of the Ten Commandments easily. One that stands out in specific is that those who reject God are haters of God. My friends, don't be fooled. There's no such thing as someone being neutral to God. Like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not either for or against God. You know, perhaps when, if and when I find out if he exists, then he'll kind of give me a right, wrong. You are an enemy of God. There's no neutrality. Someone devoid of God's spirit will fill that space with that which opposes God. So if somebody ever asks you, so what does God think about me as a non-believer? Or what does God think about humanity? Read them those verses. Romans 1, verses 29 to 31. That's what God thinks of you. You hate him, you are an enemy of him, and you are engaging in all those sins. 
Now, Paul tells us that not only is sexual deviancy a key characteristic of those who reject God, but also comes in a package. Remember, I was telling you that like, these things don't come alone. They come in a package. And in a sense, this is basically the punishment God has given them. Jeremiah 13, verse 25, reads as follows. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Remember earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, it says that people have traded the truth of God for a lie and served the creature rather than the creator. Specifically speaking about sexual perversion and deviancy, men, women, family, kids, show them the ways of God. No, not that. I want non-binary, as many sexual partners as I want, and don't tell me anything about it. I'm fine. As a matter of fact, affirm me or else. You see, the truth, the lie that has been exchanged. And God is saying, that's your own punishment. You're going to suffer the consequences of your sin, not only in this life, but in the life to come. The way this is written here in Romans 1, it demonstrates that this is not a half-hearted commitment to sin. This is a blatant and hourly militant commitment to sin. This includes both active sin, I'm engaging in it, and an active disposition, and I'm ready to do more. My friends, remember I told you at the beginning of the sermon that it's easy when we are reading this, when we are studying this, to be self-righteous. Like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like, my friends, I confess to you right now, that was me. Not only participating in sin, but actively wanting to look for more. That was me. Having the Gideons evangelized to me at Cal Poly with the little Proverbs and New Testament and me getting that from them, spitting on it, cursing them, and throwing it at their face. That was me. And I enjoyed that, okay? Because being not filled with the Spirit of God, I am an enemy of God. Okay. So as I preach here, please understand that I'm not about reproach in my former ways. As a matter of fact, maybe a lot of the deviancy you see today, maybe I didn't enact it, but my thoughts and my desires, right align there. Another key issue here in this passage that can be a common denominator to having an active lifestyle of sin and an active disposition to participate and approve of sin is the sin of covetousness, the desire to have more and more. Now this is not only material, although it could be and primarily is material, right? I, I want more of something, more money, more power, more pleasure. But this is the desire for self-gratification, the never-ending cycle and desire to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 
The great Leon Morris, in a commentator that was reading today, uh, this week, puts it as follows. It says about this passage, quote, Paul is talking about one who is never satisfied. He is always anxious to have more of something. And no matter what he gets, he remains unsatisfied. Which is, of course, an excellent illustration of Paul's point that the sinner is hardened over his sin. Evil is its own punishment. See, that kind of goes in line with the early scripture in Jeremiah 13 where the evil that is ongoing and the evil that will come out of that, like that is a punishment in itself to the wrongdoer. Those who refuse to be satisfied. So then the questions for us today, my friends, is are you satisfied? In one sense, perhaps a good answer of saying I'm not satisfied and it's still positive is say, you know what, I'm not satisfied. I could be a better father, better wife, better son, better daughter. So in that sense, yeah, I'm not satisfied. I could do better. Yet in another sense, in a negative aspect, we could realize I'm not satisfied in Christ. Truth is I'm not. And this is why I'm out there looking for these experiences and adventures and sins and lusts that the world has to offer in order to fill me. And by the way, only find out that as you engage in those vices and sins, you just keep turning back empty and empty and miserable and miserable. If we are not satisfied in Christ, you know the observation in that list said that these people are disobedient to parents. This is again an indication that there is a decay of the home. I've often emphasized that if my kids don't have any regard for the authority of the home, specifically of me as the head of my home, it'll be a matter of time before those kids have no sense or regard for authority of other authority structures outside of that, let alone for the authority of God and His Word. That begins in our home. So then parents, where are you? This sexual morality and deviancy, perversion? Are people out there that are promoting it and trying to convince us and your kids of it? Are they doing evil? You bet they are, and they will be judged. But where have you been? Where are you now? And even to those yet to be parents. Where are you now in regards to these things? Parents, are you teaching your children? Are you modeling a godly character for your children? Women, are you modeling love and respect for your husband? That is the testimony you're giving. How you treat your husband. Do you think your children don't notice? Men, do you instill Bible principles in your home in a way that is not harsh, but rather humble, with patience, kindness, and most of all, with the love and grace that the Lord Jesus gave to you? Do you enact that in your home with those that you have some influence over? 
And single folks, whether planning or looking for a spouse or are dating, are you satisfied with Christ? Or are you also looking to be filled with Christ and maybe with a little desire from the world because Christ is not enough? Are you seeking God's kingdom first and his righteousness? Or are you believing the lie that you are waiting to find that perfect person first and then you'll align your priorities to seek the kingdom first? Spoiler alert, I'll tell you. One, you're not going to find a perfect person. And secondly, even when you do find a mate, you will not then put the priorities together to seek God and his kingdom first. So I just spoil that for you. And the call is do it now. So that's a, a brief synopsis of those sins that being filled with wickedness and unrighteousness how does that look like right let us not be quick to say oh yeah them and, and they and those politicians and those evildoers it always starts with us in the home what, what am I doing what is a church doing Thirdly, let us look at verse 32, where in essence, Paul is depicting what he will talk later in chapter 6, which is that the wages of sin, like this sin, this, this unrighteousness, the wages of that is death. Verse 32, 32 reads as follows. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The consequence of sin is clear in the Bible. What is it? Death. Physical death. Spiritual death. And eternal death. You're really, uh, we need to really realize what that means. Right? Because when we are in the midst of our sin, we seem to think, it's going to be okay. Right? Wrong. That sin that we engage in is so evil that Jesus had to be humiliated, sped upon, tortured, crucified, and killed for. So when we're at that fork in that road of falling for lust, of disrespecting my spouse, of disciplining my children in anger, it's no big deal. I'm just going to go for it. Wrong. James 1, verses 14 and 15 says, where, where, where does this desire to sin come from? It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death. See, with, with this pandemic, with 
the danger of sickness and at times very severe sickness. Why is it that we try to be wise and protect ourselves and if somebody is sick to give them assistance? What is the ultimate answer? Because we love them, yeah, but why? Because we don't want them to die. See that? And my friends, if that doesn't point us to a much greater truth that unless we know Christ, we're going to perish in hell, then we're in trouble. If we evangelize someone about being fearful of getting sick and don't tell them the gospel, do we really love them? Or are we being, like I described earlier, putting a bandage on that fear? Putting a bandage on someone's fear of sickness and death without realizing that there is a death that is much infinitely worse than physical illness. And what Paul is saying here is that no one here is acting out of ignorance. Willfully, God has been rejected and sin has been embraced, uh, embraced with an attitude of like, all systems go, I'm going to embrace sin. So the rebellion of God then is not excusable. And Brother Eric, Deacon Eric, will be preaching next week in chapter 2, where he's going to be expanding on the fact that no one is going to be able to be excused. There is no claim to ignorance in those that engage in sin. However, I believe that what the sinner is ignorant of is the penalty that their sin is accumulating in not being forgiven by Christ. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. And the reason why many people don't think that their sin is a big deal, and in other words, that their sin is, maybe if it's a problem, it's only a small deal, is because they have a small view of God. And they are ignorant of the majesty of the king that they're going against. The king that they're going against. Could you imagine anyone in their own right mind being okay with going head to head against a moving, a moving train if they're in a bike? Think that? Anybody in their right mind would do that? So much more in the sinner that thinks they're going to be okay. They don't realize who they are going against. Paul mentions here that there's a decree. That's a legal term, a decree, right? Like a, a powerful king issues a decree. Like that's, that's what's going to be taking place. And it means that the final verdict for God, from God rather, has been given in regards to those who practice these sins and those who approve of them. God says they will be judged. Right? They deserve to die. Paul uses the word death 22 times in the book of Romans. 18 of those times, it is directly linked to the fact that sin equals death. 
Physical death, because we're fallen. Spiritual death. And eternal death. That's not a maybe, that's a fact. So all these sexual deviancy, the, the approval of those things, the protection of such perversion by laws that we are seeing come in the books, the approvals being given to it by pretty much everybody. God says that will be judged. It will be judged. God will not be mocked. In the meantime, we as Christians are not to sit with our hands crossed. That could be in self-righteousness or in indifference. No, we cannot do that. We are called to stand on the truth of God's word. To call ourselves to repentance and to call others to repentance. So then what can we say then? Romans chapter 1 has told us that God has revealed himself. People have rejected him. Instead, followed idols. And that leads to some very bad things. Specifically, we see here in Romans chapter 1, the, the sin of the perversion of sexuality. And that perversion of sexuality is accompanied by a full garbage dump truck of other sins. We apply that to today and we see that that has permeated our culture and has now made its way to ways that could affect our churches and our homes. Criminalize anyone who speaks against sin. So the question, my friends, are you ready? First of all, are you aware that you and your family are now engaged in an ideological war, in a spiritual war? As Galatians chapter 6 tells us, right? Says, this is a war, an invisible war in the spiritual realm. Are you ready? Do you know that you and your kids, in one way or another, are being evangelized. One commercial at a time. One movie at a time. One compromising conviction at a time. In order to embrace the sins of Romans chapter 1. And we're being evangelized into thinking that that's the normalcy. If you dare to speak against it, you are the one who's wrong. We are reminded then that the Christian journey is not for us to come on board as if we're entering a cruise ship. But rather, I said it before, it's a battleship. And you are to take your arms and be ready to fight. And I'll say this, not to be only on defense, but on offense, and you attack. All that is impossible. Okay, so what am I saying? If I'm telling you to do it, it's impossible. It's impossible apart from being submitted.
to the will and to the word of God. You cannot do it on your own. You'll fail. Submission to the word of God in order to live according to it. Man, that's a lot of bad news. I mean, going back to Brother Johnny's Sunday school today, right? That's bad news. The question is, the last question I have for you today, is there any hope? Is there any hope then? Well, let us look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But, oh, thank God for that, but, oh, thank the Lord Jesus. But the free gift of God, what do you got to do? Nothing. Because you can't do nothing. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See that sin, unrighteousness, deviancy, corruption brings death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, damnation. And we read here that although that's true, it says, but the free gift of God, meaning that you don't deserve it, he gifts it to you, is the opposite of death, the opposite of eternal death. It is eternal life in Christ Jesus, the only Savior, the only way to the Father, the only truth, the only way, the only life. And in that, it says, our Lord. Not my homie, not my advisor, not the boss upstairs. No, our Lord. This implies that we are servants, we are slaves, and we are owned by a Lord, by a master, by Jesus. See that? Because the effects of sin are so grave and so real and so damning. The solution is infinitely and must be infinitely more powerful. And that comes as a gift by God's grace because he loves his children. And then if we indeed are his children inheriting eternal life. We come to him through Christ only, and he is our Lord. We are in full submission to his lordship. My friends, this is not easy believism. You know, little Johnny said he was a Christian when he was three years old, so he should be good. Wrong. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And as Christians, let us beware of giving people, especially our family members, false assurance. Confession number two from your pastor, that's difficult for me. Specifically with my, grand, with my grandmas. Both of them are still alive. Because I know they do not know Christ. And health-wise, they're not doing too good. Do they have devotion? You bet. Do they have faith? You bet. But is it in Christ and Him alone? No. And what's at stake is death, not only physical death, that's the easy one in the realm of eternity, 
but eternal death, eternal damnation. As we realize the seriousness of sin, depravity of corruption, let us realize that we're not left to our own devices there. We are offered a savior who is able to save by faith through his grace. He is the great advocate that we need. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And in him, we put our hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we discuss this chapter of Romans, in which is very clear, Lord, that rebellion and perversion, deviancy is so real. Lord, allow us to understand that but at the same time, may your Holy Spirit give us hope, give us assurance, give us conviction to trust you, to cry after you for mercy. And as we do so, Lord, that we would be motivated and moved to share you good news to love others, to love our neighbor by telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. And for us that know you, Lord, that we'll be motivated into obedience, more and more obedience each day of our lives. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our mighty Lord and Savior. Amen.